Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So, uh, welcome to our show. You know, if you go on most American news sites right now and type Russia uh, into the search function, you're mostly going to see a lot of articles about possible ties between President Trump and Russia and investigations into those ties. But you might not see that many articles about Russia itself, how Russia got to be the way it is at this moment, and, and how Vladimir Putin actually runs Russia. So we're going to focus more on that today. We're going to focus more on how Russia got to be the place that it is right now and what kind of place it is right now. Now, necessarily, as we do that, we are going to be drawing some very sharp parallels between the way Russia is now and the way the United States is becoming now. Uh, maybe even more parallels than you might have expected. So uh, as we go along here, we'll be talking to several different guests right now. Joining us uh, by Skype uh, from Russia is Alexei Kovalov, a Russian journalism and political blogger living in Moscow. He's been writing uh, recently for The Guardian uh, and also for Medium.com, where a, a piece of his uh, a message to the American media from Russia went uh, totally viral recently. So Alexei, welcome to our show and our conversation. Hi there. So you had an insight while watching President Trump's first press conference, an insight in uh, about how he resembles the uh, or his his press conference resembles a Putin press conference. What, what was that insight? Uh, well, as I was watching uh, Donald Trump's press first press conference, it's, it's uh, uh, several aspects of it really struck me. Like, uh, uh, hold on a second, I've seen this before. Uh, like the way he treats the press, uh, uh, the, the, his general hostility towards the press, and uh, his tendency to, well, expertly expertly manipulate the agenda uh, in his favor. So whatever you think of him, whatever you write of him. You still you still are bound to his persona. You you still are uh, uh, feel obliged to uh, report uh, almost religiously on everything he says, even though you are fundamentally opposed to uh, fundamentally opposed to everything he says and does. Uh, he dominates the headlines, and that, that that's very similar in many ways uh, to how Vladimir Putin dominates the uh, Russian domestic media agenda. Uh, from what I'm seeing. So one of the things that Donald Trump does uh, uh, pretty effectively these days is to say something that doesn't really have any real basis in fact or at least any set of facts to confirm it or to back it up. And, and yet it, it acquires a certain status as truth. For example, he said that three to five million people voted illegally in the last election and voted for his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Uh, recently, he, he tweeted uh, out, of, out, of the, out of nowhere, he tweeted that President Obama had wiretapped his phones uh, during the 2016 campaign. Um, there isn't any factual basis for any of those things. But this is 
also a little bit similar to something that Putin does, right? Something doesn't have to be true. It sort of can become true because Putin says it. Uh, well, you, you see, the thing is that it doesn't necessarily have to be untrue as well. <laughs> uh because whatever he says will be in the headlines, and he doesn't—he doesn't really have to lie or manipulate uh, you. Uh, just, uh, just like today, you, know, you, see, you see the problem in in the, in the Russian headlines is not the fake news uh, as such; is the it, it's the genuine news, uh, which leave you less informed uh, than you were before reading the headlines. Like for example, today, uh, somebody, some regional governor said uh, that no. Uh, democracy doesn't really suit Russia, let's go back to monarchy. And then Putin responds back with, no, that would be unconstitutional, let's stick with democracy. And it's in the headlines everywhere. It's it's the top news on all, on, on all Russian media. But are you uh, somehow more informed about the way Russia is run uh, than you were before reading the headlines? Why is everyone compelled to even report on this? It's total nonsense. It's not fake news, but it's uh, it's it's absolute. Uh, uh, it's devoid of any meaning. Yet, yet still, even everyone uh, feels uh, everyone in the industry feels compelled to uh, write these news briefs uh, and even uh, ask for expert comments. Like, is Russia really used for uh, for democracy? You see, you see where I'm going. Right. So. Um... Uh, let's go back in time to 2014. This is the example that I have, and I may not understand it all that well, and I probably also will mispronounce the name of it. But uh, uh, my recollection is that in 2014, uh, when Putin, uh, he started calling the southeastern wedge of Ukraine that he wanted to annex Novorossiya. Uh, now, there had been such a place. It just wasn't really exactly the place that he was talking about. But the more that he and the state talked about it that way, inserted it into official communications, maybe put it into uh, textbooks and things like that, it, it, it became that became the, the real place, even though historically speaking, it wasn't the real place. Does this am I making any sense here? Uh, well, yes, but we, we are already past the phase. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, n nobody really, apart from a few really dedicated or misguided people, uh, put any faith into the notion. And you won't hear, you, you won't even hear the name uh, uh, on the official air, airwaves these days. It's the uh, uh, some some areas of eastern Ukraine or some, or some such. You know, it's, they've really abandoned, abandoned this idea because it's, it served its, its purpose uh, for, for the time it was uh, uh, cooked up. In, uh, I mean, the, the, you won't really hear the name Novorossiya uh, yeah. anywhere in the headlines these days. But for, for a little while, it was sort of a convenient yeah. fiction. Um, yeah. And, and so um, give us uh, some examples uh, of statements that Putin makes that are either unprovable or outlandish. Um, well, you see, these days uh, he kind of uh, he realizes the scrutiny that he's under. So uh, I'd say in the, in the past couple of years, uh, he has been a bit more careful about uh, what he says. But just to, to give you a glimpse uh uh, into his wor his world as he sees it. Uh, a couple of years ago, he was uh, he, he holds these uh, these press conferences at the end of each year in December, 
for the press, for mem members of the press, mm -hmm. both, both domestic and international. Uh, but also, uh, in April each year, he also uh, holds these phone-ins uh, for, for the public. Like, he answers the most pressing questions the public has for, for the Russian president. Mm -hmm. But, of course, all these, all these things are carefully choreographed in advance. Uh, so you don't have just mm -hmm. random people phoning in. Uh, it's all just yeah, uh, uh, and it get, gets analyzed and picked apart uh, later. You, you'll find out that these people phoning in into this Putin's uh, uh, sort of people's press conference that uh, that they are uh, local political uh, leaders or uh, uh, some trade union, some some loyalist trade union leaders or some such. So once. Um, he was answering the question about uh, the the way uh, it was something about the way the Western media treats him unfairly, of course. And he said uh, that, but you know, you know, all these uh, all these recent revelations, and, and it was the time when the, the Panama Papers were still in the headlines. And he said, well, you know, but of course the uh, the the news the German newspaper. Uh, which had broken the uh, Panama Papers story. It's, it's owned by Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. But of course it's not. Uh, because in his world, uh, no protest is genuine. Mm -hmm. And no anti-corruption investigation uh, is grassroots. It's just, there's always some shadowy organization or... Uh, Someone pulling the strings, the, the strings from behind the scenes, uh, and it's just it's just one of the examples I can uh, of off the top of my head I, I can think of a, of a dozen more uh, examples uh, of how he and his inner circle how how these people really think. Uh, they think the way they run uh, Russia is the way every country in the world is run. So you, you'll see the uh, you'll see this invisible wall of misunderstanding every time they uh, collide in public with uh, with the Western press with the uh, with the Western interviewer uh, uh, with the Western reporters in, in interviewing Putin or his spokesman or whatever they really do think after all these years after 17 years in power that they still think that the way they they run a country like micromanaging all the uh, uh, setting up all these fake, phony civil society organizations and micromanaging the media from the presidential administration. It's its the way the entire world works. Well, it's, this, it, does, yeah. it does seem as though, I mean, maybe to make a blunt uh, comparison, that in the old Soviet Union, the goal of propaganda was to convince everybody that a particular statement was true whether it was true or not. And it seems as though under Putin, the goal is more to create, uh, you know, as you say, an invisible wall of misunderstanding, a state of confusion, and maybe a state of such high confusion that people stop really caring about what's true and what's not. There was a book about Russia recently. I think it was called Everything is Possible and Nothing is Real, uh, something, something along those lines. You know, th yeah. th then is, is that closer to the attitude towards news these days? Uh, yeah, uh, a book by Peter Pomeranz, yeah. my good friend, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, yeah, this, uh, this is the kind of uh, uh, the media empire that they've been building. Yes, to, to, to many, in, in many aspects, that is true. 
And you'll see that uh, in, in, in the public statements in, by Putin and his closest associates, uh, and especially the, the editors that he himself appoints, of uh, this, this state-run media, mm. uh, especially Margarita Simonyan, the editor-in-chief of uh, what was formerly known as uh, Russia's Day and now is known as RT, uh, and uh, people like the deputy minister of press uh, in in Russia and Putin's spokesman himself, uh, the, they do uh, it, it. Kind of uh, breaks through the. Uh, the democratic persona that they, that they had built for themselves. It breaks through and they say, no, objectivity doesn't really exist. You know, there is no truth. We cannot really know the truth. Uh, and because there isn't really any objective truth, uh, whatever you believe uh, is true should be uh, the truth. And, uh, of course, if you are a true patriot, you should only believe... Uh, that uh, what is true that is only beneficial for your country, for your country's interests, and they uh, they they uh, understand it in a very narrow sense. Like uh, when I was working for the uh, state uh, news agency Ria Novosti uh, back in the day, uh, uh, guy who uh, one of the founders of RT actually, uh, Alexei Gromov, uh, who is now deputy. Uh, chief of uh, Putin's staff, and he kind of he Russians media from behind the scenes. He pulled all, he pulled all the strings. Uh, he said he literally set the agenda of the, of the Russian. He told his people, the, these editors in federal TV channels and newspapers, yep. basically what to cover, what to cover, and what not to cover. And uh, uh, he. Uh, on on several occasions, actually, he said that uh, if you're working for a state media for a state media outlet, you are a, a public servant first, mm-hmm. and journalist and journalist second, if at all. You have to serve your country, and we are on the on the forefront of an information war, and uh, uh, we can't afford these liberties and and the, the, these these luxuries such as truth or objectivity. We are fighting this information war. Uh, we are in the trenches, uh, so we must fight it by whatever means necessary. So that's the that's the kind of the, that that's uh, the way these people think and act. So I mean, one of the things that happens in the United States is that occasionally people here in the United States will be maybe doing a Google search for a particular news topic, and they'll come across. Uh, an article that's on RT that's the, that is uh, written by and distributed by RT. They may not know even what RT is in this country. Uh, if they do know a little bit, they may not know a lot about what RT is. How, how would you warn people? What would you tell an American person who was prepared to believe and maybe post on social media something that they found on RT? Uh, well, you see, this is where I'm kind of deviating from um, uh, from the established uh, point of view, I'd say, because I don't I don't find uh, RT uh, particularly dangerous or destructive, uh, uh, because if you look, if, if you pay enough attention to it, uh, as I've been I, I've been watching RT for hours at a time for, for a couple of years now, and I. 
don't actually find it that that interesting at all. I mean, this is a uh, it, uh, one of its strengths, uh, strengths and uh, weaknesses at the same time. It's trying to uh, put up these uh, uh, this very respectable facade. I mean, there, there are uh, uh, Western presenters, mm-hmm. uh, Western anchors speaking perfect English on air, uh, but there is nothing. Uh, what, what, you know what really what really strikes me is as I talk to people people about RT is that very few people who explain the or discuss the dangers of RT and Russian propaganda for the Western democracy actually care to watch it. If they did, <laughs> they find it really uh, boring uh, because that's what <laughs> not you know if you look at the actual stats and numbers. Uh, not that many people actually do watch RT on air. Actually, n- very few, if, if any, uh, or go to it, its website, uh, which isn't really among the uh, uh, America's uh, most visited websites at all. Uh, and I don't really think it's really beneficial for, especially in the current climate, that. Uh, uh, you need to flag these links to RT that it's somehow especially dangerous or insidious or destructive. No, it's not really. I mean, it's it's, it's schizophrenic in many ways. Uh, like you, you know, in, within the same hour, you'll see uh, entirely conflicting ideological viewpoints uh, aimed at very different and compartmentalized audiences all across the uh, political spectrum. But it doesn't mean it's somehow... Uh, especially devious. Hmm. That's what I'm. Uh, um, th- that's what I wanted to say. And there's actually uh, uh, another point that I wanted to make. Uh, uh, that this this whole discussion, this climate, is really heading uh, in a very unhealthy direction. I'd say, if you want, if if, if you want me to uh, to elaborate. Well, um, I do want you to elaborate, but but um, before we do that, and before we run out of time. I, I do want you to sort of talk a little bit about how some of the stories that Americans follow here are playing in Russia. And let's specifically talk about President Trump as a candidate. He seemed to be singing the uh, praises of Vladimir uh, Putin. Now he has different things to say. How How is President Trump regarded by the average Russian person if there is such a thing? Uh, well, the, uh, you know, there's, there's a difference between what you see uh, – uh, I'm often asked what, what what does Putin think of Donald Trump mm. based on what uh, uh, the Russian state media uh, report, uh, but that would be two different things. Uh, mm. What Rus- what the Russian state media report is uh, what Putin, or more specifically his pers- his his closest associates, uh, want Russians to think, but it's, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same thing that Putin mm. himself thinks. Uh, so it's been a, uh, like an emotional roller coaster in the past few months. Uh, and it's been really fun to watch uh, uh, because there's probably uh, there hasn't been there hasn't been uh, there hasn't been a country in the world that was so enthusiastic of, of Donald Trump uh, as a as a candidate. And uh, I was watching it uh, very closely, the coverage of uh, the uh, U.S. presidential uh, presidential elections and the uh, and on the Russian media, and they were literally spending more time. Uh, uh, describing the way Donald Trump wasn't treated unfairly by by the American media 
and how he was being sabotaged uh, by uh, Barack Obama's uh, secret admirers in the White House. They were spending more time discussing Donald Trump, uh, far, far more time actually, uh, than they would spend on uh, covering domestic affairs. Hmm. Um, Alexei Kovalev, um, uh, we have to take a little break here. I want to thank you for joining us today. Alexei Kovalev, Russian journalist and political blogger living in Moscow. When we come back, we'll be talking to a journalist uh, uh, and author who has been writing about uh, the post-Soviet Union Russia for a long time. And let me remind you and myself what we're doing here. I, you know, I think what we're doing here today is that the the, the subject of Russia is suddenly on everybody's minds. Uh, it's very much in the news. It, it's maybe not something that Americans thought very much about for a number of years. It was pushed to the background. I think people's attention to the extent that Americans follow foreign affairs at all. They got very interested in the Middle East. Um, but now Russia's back. And this is sort of a refresher course, a, a little bit anyway, uh, on how things are there and how they got to be that way. Uh, that latter topic is very much what we'll be talking about right now with David Satter, journalist and expert on Russia and the Soviet Union, author of The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. Uh, David Satter, welcome to our conversation. Oh, well, thank you. Glad to uh, glad to be with you. So um, I would say that unlike you, as I said before, most of us kind of turned our attentions away from uh, Russia a bit anyway, and and you know probably even barely understand how Vladimir Vladimir Putin got to be where he is right now. Maybe you can quickly remind us uh, what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, to 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 thrust Putin into where he is right now. Well, after the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, uh, a massive social transformation took place. The Soviet Union was a country that was based on state property. Uh, everything was, all of the economic assets were in the hands of the state, and uh, the so-called young reformers set about privatizing the economy, taking property out of the hands of the state putting it into the hands of private individuals. And they were determined to do that as rapidly as possible. Uh, they didn't much care uh, in whose hands the property was placed. If those hands were criminal, well, that was fine, because the market would uh, sort everything out. At least that's what they thought. Uh, they were basing some of their presumptions on Western models uh, that really didn't apply to Russia. And the reason was that Western societies have a framework of ethics and law. Russia doesn't have that. R Russia doesn't have a kind of moral context uh, for economic relations. And so what happened when it became a free-for-all in Russia was that uh, the criminals took over. And that was really the contribution of Yeltsin. But, what, but uh, uh, for various reasons... The democratic facade that had been created was preserved, and there were regular elections. So by the time uh, Yeltsin had served out his second term and uh, new presidential elections were uh, on the horizon, there was a crisis in the leadership because the same 
uh, leadership that had fostered the pillaging of the country, the, the rise to power of a kind of criminal group, was now facing the voters. And it was clear that the voters were not very happy. Uh, public opinion polls showed that, for example, Yeltsin was supported by only 2% of the population. Well, in most uh, surveys, 6% of the respondents don't understand the question. So 2% is an indication that practically no one in Russia supported Yeltsin. And the same was true for his hand-picked successor, uh, Vladimir Putin. But then uh, an event took place that changed everything. In September 1999, four apartment buildings in Russia were blown up in the middle of the night, killing hundreds of people as they slept. The uh, Terrorist Act, which has been uh, compared to 9-11 in the U.S., was blamed on Chechen terrorists. There was never any proof of this, of course. And uh, this was the excuse for a new war in Chechnya. Putin, who had just been appointed prime minister, was put in charge of that war. The war was uh, pursued with barbaric means, and at first it was successful, and that boosted Putin's popularity. And uh, as the pose of savior of the country, avenger of, of a vicious terrorist attack, uh, was adopted by more and more people. Putin's uh, popularity rose, and he was uh, he was elected president. His his first act as president was to pardon Yeltsin for all crimes committed while he was president, and also to announce that the results of privatization would not be reevaluated. So, in effect, the Yeltsin entourage, the sort of criminal regime that was created under Yeltsin, was saved in this way. And everything would have been fine, uh, except that a fifth bomb was found in an apartment building in Ryazan, a city southeast of Moscow. And the people who put the bomb in the basement were caught, and they turned out not to be Chechen terrorists. They turned out to be agents of the FSB, which is the Russian security police, the successor of the KGB. From which Putin had emerged himself. Yeah, of course. He was the former head of the FSB. So the evidence was, and the evidence has been building up ever since, that an act of terror was carried out against Russia's own people, and that brought Putin to power. And that saved the corrupt Yeltsin entourage, who would have faced prison or worse. And, uh, of course, once a, a, a person with an FSB background who had been implicated and, and involved in such a horrific crime, uh, had taken power, uh, it was inevitable that step by step he would eliminate whatever liberties still existed in Russia. And of course, we've come to what we have now. So if people are listening to this now and they happen to run into a leader who says that there are people who can attack you and kill you in your homes and I can protect you from those people with my policies, um, you should wonder if that's ever happened in any other country before. Uh, and the answer might be yes. Um, that's me talking. That's not Dave. Um, so um, we should talk a little bit about um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine because I think that's probably one of the other kind of pivotal uh, events in the in, in the 
status of Putin a- as a leader. So uh, give us your take on that. We'll talk about the significance of that event as it pertains to Russians, um, maybe Russia's a crack in the facade that Russia was trying to maintain. Uh, I'll be happy to do that. I do want to caution uh, you and our, our listeners about making facile comparisons between the situation in this country and the situation in Russia. Uh, you, uh, the, what happened in Russia was possible because of the lack of democratic institutions, uh, the lack of civil society, the lack of, a, of an uncontrolled press. Um, the... Uh, the difficulty is that uh, when we float those theories about our own country, uh, we just muddy the waters because those things can take place in countries like Russia. The whole structure of the situation in the United States prevents it from taking place here. And what, what the, 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 the boomerang effect of, of making those allegations or, or, or the loose talk about, you know, uh, about... Uh, possible false flag attacks in the United States is that we're, we're so muddled that we don't have the analytical precision that's necessary in order to recognize those attacks when they do occur in societies where they are possible. And in fact, as a result, we don't really understand you know, what we're dealing with in the world. So we don't want to get into a situation of deluding ourselves. As far as the uh, Ukraine is, as far as Ukraine is concerned, <clears throat> what happened in Ukraine? You had a, a kleptocratic ruler, Viktor Yanukovych, who, uh, in many ways, had established a system uh, like the system that exists in Russia. He one by one eliminated independent centers of power. He. Uh, monopolized property and the country's assets, uh, handed them out to his close associates and friends, and uh, fostered massive corruption. But uh, the situation in Ukraine is more pluralistic for historical reasons than the situation that exists in Russia. And one result of that was a, a, a massive popular revolt against Yanukovych and against his regime. And that revolt was self-organizing. It was spontaneous. Uh, It involved hundreds of thousands of people, and it was a protest against lawlessness, protest against uh, corruption, and the fact that uh, a small corrupt group was strangling the country's future. And the result was, in the end, that Yanukovych was, was overthrown. Now, that precedent was extremely threatening as far as Russia was concerned. There had been protests in Russia. They, they, they kind of fizzled out. But Russians and Ukrainians are very closely linked. Many Ukrainians have, are, are from Russia. Many Russians are from Ukraine. The, uh, many people in Russia are of Ukrainian descent. Their families on both sides of the border. The example of a popular uh, uprising against uh, kleptocratic rule in Ukraine was definitely contagious, and it had to be, it had to be uh, uh, combated, and it was combated in the same way that the Yeltsin regime was saved by distracting the attention of the people, finding a foreign enemy, uh, and. Uh, <clears throat> 
making the, 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 the Putin regime appear to be the savior of the country. So that's what provoked the seizure of Crimea and the invasion of East Ukraine. It was not, as some people have suggested, that, that Putin is trying to rebuild the Soviet empire. They're realistic enough to know that that's not possible. But it was a diversionary maneuver, and it worked because his popularity soared. In fact, Putin's popularity has soared every time that he has started a war. Uh, and... Uh, when the situation uh, in Ukraine uh, encountered difficulties from the Russian point of view because of unexpected uh, stiff Ukrainian resistance, they distracted the population again with an intervention in Syria. So what you have ultimately in Ukraine is, is an effort to control the situation in Russia. Um, last question before we go to a break here, um, and it's it's sort of a nebulous question, but we're, you know, just in a lot of the reading that I've done, I've been sort of left with the question of how to evaluate how truly popular Vladimir Putin is in his own country. Uh, you know, there's a, a quote from Igor Yakovenko a few years ago: "If previous authoritarian regimes uh, were three parts violence and one part propaganda, he's a professor at, of journalism at Moscow State University of International Relations. If previous authoritarian regimes were three parts violence and one part propaganda, this one is virtually all propaganda and relatively little violence. Putin only needs to make a few arrests and then amplify the message through his total control of television." I feel like a situation like that makes it hard to understand, you know, how Putin, how popular Putin really is with his own people, and, and maybe whether that even matters or not. Well, it certainly matters. And uh, the, the important thing to bear in mind is that Russians, for, for, in a situation of, of state uh, oppression, Russians have learned to think, speak, and react on various levels. To say one thing because they believe it's expected of them, to think perhaps something different, and maybe even to react in a third way. Uh, as long as the propaganda is as relentless as it is now, and as long as it appeals to the kind of injured nationalism that exists in the country as a result of the loss of great power status after the fall of the Soviet Union, Putin will have an audience. And uh, his popularity in the country is massively reinforced by the fact that the economic boom in Russia that resulted from the rise in raw materials prices took place uh, shortly after after he came into power, in this in this respect, you can to a certain extent. Uh, I don't like comparisons with Hitler, but in in Nazi Germany, the fact that that the economy suddenly began to 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 expand was hugely important in cementing the political position of Hitler. Uh, the uh, in the case of of Putin, he he benefited from from. Amazing good luck, because of the the, the change in the world commodities markets that uh, that that showered Russia with money and made it possible for the economy to boom. But that all of the popularity that we're talking about and that's measured in the polls is extremely fragile. 
because at the same time as people praise Putin and uh, like what he's doing and like the change in their lives, they're also perfectly aware of the lawlessness. They're perfectly aware of the corruption. I, uh, I had a friend in Moscow who, who on the one hand, was, was, was praising Putin uh, as a great leader and then said that uh, she knew people who, who were acquainted with the, the, the assassins that he uses to kill people. And, and those two points of view coexist. But the balance can change uh, depending on circumstances. We're talking to David Satter right now. His book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship Under Yeltsin and Putin. We're going to focus in uh, on the cyber attacks of last summer uh, and the related influence of the American election after this. big announcements. One, we're collecting stories from people who feel the 2016 election made them physically or psychologically sick. To find out more, go to wnpr.org slash Colin and scroll down till you see the picture of the therapy dog. Two, next week we're doing a simplified version of our annual Tournament of Books show. There are only four novels, The Knicks, Underground Railroad, Moon Glow, and Mr. Monkey. Check them out on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page and maybe read one before next Tuesday. Okay, now it's time to mention that comrade Josh Nalea produced today's show with me, Kion Wolf, from Russia with Love, and we had some help from Amanda Fishnova. Part of Bill Curry was played by Boris Spassky. On tomorrow's show, a very similar Bill Curry and Julia Pistel return as the Tracy and Hepburn of college basketball in our March Madness show. And now, back to Colin. If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. As far as Putin is concerned, I think Putin's been a very strong leader for Russia. But he's been a lot stronger than our leader, that I can tell you. Well, he does have an 82% approval rating, according to the different pollsters. Do you have a relationship with Vladimir Putin, a conversational relationship? I do have a relationship, and it's very interesting to see what's happened. I mean, look. He's done a very brilliant job. If you look at what he's done with Syria, if you look at so many of the different things, he's done an amazing job. Look, I think when he calls me brilliant, I'll take the compliment, okay? Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? He's a leader of his country. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? All right, so let's talk a little bit more about that and about what happened last summer and what happened even before last summer. Joining us to do that is Malcolm Nance, retired senior U.S. Navy officer, media commentator, and author of The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election. Malcolm Nance, welcome to our show. That's my pleasure to be here. So uh, the hack of the DNC isn't really where this story starts at all. It would be hard to know where the sto- story starts. But the hacking of various United States domestic targets uh, by, by Russian hackers, even specifically some of the Russian hackers involved this time, has been around for a long time. Uh, one of these groups even hacked into the State Department uh, in 2014. So, so what changed in 2016? What was different about this? Well, as you said, the Russians use cyber warfare and hacking uh, like we butter bread in the morning. Uh, it's not something which is used, you know, in very rare conditions like the National Security Agency does when it uses it. Uh, but what happened in 2016 actually occurred in 2015. At some point, 
Vladimir Putin and his intelligence agencies, uh, or directed his intelligence agencies, determined that they were going to influence the American election. This is not the sort of thing that could happen just at a very low level at uh, the offices of the FSB, the Russian Intelligence Service, formerly known as the KGB. Uh, these are the uh, types of operations which would have to be approved by Vladimir Putin himself, former KGB officer, former director of Russian intelligence. And Putin decided that Hillary Clinton needed to be damaged. And so by doing that, understanding that the Republican Party had up to this point been hammering her on emails related to the Benghazi hearings, he directed Russian and state intelligence, uh, the military branch, GRU, to hack into the servers of the Democratic National Committee and get as much information as possible. They were in those servers for 10 months before they were detected, and they copied every email in there, every voicemail left on answering machines, monitored all of their chats and private communications. And then uh, in April of 2016, when they were discovered, they started releasing them uh, at first through an entity called Kucherfer 2.0, which just was a team of Russian intelligence officers pretending to be a Romanian hacker. And then they passed everything on to WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks, as you know, was more than happy to release all of that information uh, particularly on the first day of the Democratic National Convention, uh, in order to split the Democratic Party in half between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And from there, just kept dumping information out until the end of the, uh, of the election era, period. So one of the questions that I have is whether or not, uh, and this is a hard one to answer, but whether or not Putin and Russian intelligence really thought they could sway a whole election. In the past, when we talk about them, when others have talked about them, it's usually done in a more general way. For example, Bruno Kahl, the head of Germany's foreign intelligence agencies, said the perpetrators are interested in delegitimizing the democratic process as such, regardless of whom that ends up helping. Now, we know, as you were just suggesting, that Putin had a reason to, to dislike Hillary Clinton more than he, he disliked Trump. But, you know, there were cables uh, and communications going from the Russian embassy the day after the election that, that to back to Moscow that suggest that maybe they were as surprised as everybody else in the way things came out. What's your take on that? Well, some of that may be true. And, and David Satter touched on some of these points in the, in the previous interview. Uh, Russia does carry out operations in order to influence uh, opinion uh, in its own country and outside of, of other countries. And they want to have uh, the ability to ensure that their point of view is seen. However, you have to understand something about Russian intelligence and Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin was raised as a communist officer in a communist nation uh, as a KGB careerist. Uh, but when the Soviet Union fell, he found himself out of a job and went out into the enforcement business in St. Petersburg. And that's what propelled him to become the, first, uh, the president of Russia after doing a stint as the director of Russian intelligence, FSB, under Boris Yeltsin. None of the operations which the Soviet Union developed in order to delegitimize democracy, in order to uh, establish uh, political and economic dominance, none of those goals went away when the Soviet Union fell. And technically, even though Russia is not particularly a wealthy nation, it's a nation with a lot of resources, uh, but the gross domestic product of Italy and half of the gross national product of, of France uh, 
Russia still sees itself as a nation wanting to be respected on a national stage as some other country, as a country other than, you know, maintaining atomic bombs. Vladimir Putin took those tools and used these cyber warfare tools, as he did in many other countries, and they formed uh, a technique called compromise, right, which means to compromise a person. So in Estonia, Georgia, uh, Lithuania, France, Poland, they would steal information in an effort to discredit individuals or to discredit a movement for their own political purposes. But when you're talking about the, what they decided to do against the Americans in 2015, 2016, is an order of magnitude greater than anything that they had done before. They decided that they were not only going to put their thumb on the scale, they were going to put their hand on the thumb of this election. And by doing that, they stole everything from one party, not from all players, from one party. They used that information in a calculated series of leaks in order to damage the nominee of that party. And if you look, you know, people ask me all the time, they say, well, did Russia really have an effect on this election? Granted, Hillary Clinton's emails were an issue, but they had been put to bed in early July when uh, Director Comey came out and said that there was nothing wrong going on there. Almost immediately after that, Russia dumped via WikiLeaks all of the emails of the Democratic National Committee uh, and, again, pushed emphasis towards emails. So if you look at the word cloud of Hillary Clinton's uh, election coverage, it's dominated by one word, emails. You look at Donald Trump, it's several different words, but it's not dominated by one word. Uh, the Russians understand that. They understand how this works, and they put it to good effect. And to tell you the truth, there is no reason why Russia would, would essentially engage in a massive cyber warfare operation against the United States at high risk unless they thought that they could have some chance of getting the candidate that they wanted elected into the Oval Office. And if you just look at the behavior of the Oval Office this, today or this month, um, that was a pretty good bet. So, um, Malcolm Nance, the Obama administration learned about this hacking attempt uh, in at least by early summer of last year. Um, they didn't really, I mean, the, the argument has been made they should have treated this like an electoral five-alarm fire, you know, although they weren't completely silent about it. Ultimately, and then later in September at the G20 summit, uh, Obama famously said to Putin, cut it out. But should should President Obama have gone on television on all, all major networks and said, we've got a real problem here? that that is a hand on the thumb on the scale like we've never seen before? I think he should have. And I actually made that recommendation in my last chapter. And you have to know, my book came out on September 23rd of last year, mm -hmm. the exact same day that the CIA delivered their report to the president uh, with the exact same conclusions, because I'm not a journalist, I'm an intelligence officer. Uh, we just think differently. And one of the things that I could understand about Barack Obama and anybody who, knew, who, who, who admires Barack Obama knows that he believes in the norms and the standards and the dignity of the White House and the Oval Office from its inception by George Washington to up to him. And he was going to maintain that nonpartisanship on something as important as an election. Now, he did pick up the red phone and call Vladimir Putin personally and warn him not to hack uh, into the electoral process, into the election machines, the actual votes, or the United 
states would take a, uh, a view that it would be an attack on the nation. And that is upholding those same standards of dignity and decency. But in this era of Donald Trump, that just looks quaint, uh, whereas perhaps a more forceful, I'm sorry, forceful um, statement should have been made. He did make it. But you, you have to understand, he, he announced this to the nation mm-hmm. on the same day that we were hearing about Donald Trump uh, referring to, uh, you know, in his Billy Bush video, uh, grabbing people. So it got lost in the in the chaff, and the American public wasn't listening. But had Director Comey come out in the same way that he did about Hillary Clinton's emails and say, we believe that the Russians are trying to get Donald Trump elected, uh, that could have had some impact. But you weren't going to see that from Barack Obama. I, I guess not. Well, Malcolm Nance, we have to stop there. The book is The Plot to Hack America, How Putin, Cyber Spies, and WikiLeaks Trying to Steal the 2016 Election. Maybe more if more of us had read it before November 8th, things would have come out a little bit differently. However, that's all. I mean, it's, you know, that's borscht over the dam or under the bridge or something like that. All right. Thanks very much to everybody who helped out with today's show. Tomorrow's show is uh, one of our highly entertaining, or so we hope, looks at March Madness. It won't really help you fill out your bracket very much, but it may help you be amused while other people are filling out theirs. <laughs>